0: I know what you're thinking, Punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself in all this excitement.
1: But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off. You could ask yourself a question Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, Punk? Hold up. This episode is brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. And you know, William Mitchell Audio never sends me ad reads because they trust me to represent their brand with an off-the-cuff but very informative ad every time. But the corporate suits over at William Mitchell Audio just contacted me and told me this has to be the most punk rock ad ever. And they told me, if this is not the most punk rock ad they've ever heard, then I'd never podcast in this town again. So I stayed up all night for seven nights in a row writing this ad. Do you have the time to listen to an ad about William Mitchell Audio? I am one of those Podcasters who are sponsored by William Mitchell Audio. Sometimes they give me microphones. Sometimes they give me advice so don't take. It all keeps adding up. I think I'm cracking up. So go to WilliamMitchellAudio.com. Go to William My guest today is Nancy Barrill. Nancy Barrill is a National Board certified award-winning high school English language arts teacher, an adjunct professor, writer, and author of I'm Not Holding Your Coat, my Bruces and All memoir of Punk Rock Rebellion. She lives outside Boston with her husband, Al Barrill and Flippy the Beagle. What's up, Nancy?
0: How are you doing? <laughs>
1: really good. I just read your book.
0: Oh, awesome.
1: Yeah. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. It's kind of like a little bit of a, a balancing act with that. Cause like when I have an author on, I like to try to, you know, make sure that I read the book close enough to the episode so that it's fresh in my mind, but not like make it where I don't have time to finish. So <laughs> does that make sense? Oh, right. And uh, your book pleasantly, I actually, uh, I was, I meant to finish it yesterday. That's kind of how I timed it but I didn't want to put it down. So I ended up finishing it quite a bit sooner than I had planned. I actually just started reading it and then I didn't want to stop. So I finished last week, but I
0: love that, <laughs> but
1: it, but it is still clear in my mind. <laughs> I haven't I forgotten that. last week yet. You know what I think? I think we should just, uh, give the people what they want. And I think we should kick off the interview interview with, uh, just jump right into like the middle and say the story, uh, of the Black Flag SOA show that started a riot in Kensington. Uh, is that cool with you?
0: That's cool with me. Yeah. You know, it was a good
1: starting place. Just to like, let's get the action going.
0: OK, yeah. So, you know, what do you what do you want to know? It was a terrifying, absolutely terrifying <laughs> night. I think I still have PTSD from it. Um, you know, it was dangerous and um, horrifying and really scary.
1: I guess uh yeah I guess like to like set the scene just so everyone knows cuz not everyone uh you know you live in Philadelphia And I guess what is Kensington? Is that like? So
0: yeah, Kensington is a neighborhood of Philadelphia. And it, you know, it sort of had a notorious rep. I had seen a couple of bands there before this Black Flag SOA show um, without incident. But other people sort of said, oh, you know, this isn't a good place. You know, I I tell the story about my friend Mike Condi from the Proteins, who had a really bad experience there. But back then, you know, we were sort of jaded everywhere was kind of dangerous and everywhere was kind of rough. So you went you took your chances. And so as soon as we arrived, there was a tension in the air. You know, I felt it immediately. It was palatable, you know, and um, the D.C. kids that were there were sort of, um, you know, Ian and I talked about it later. They were drunk. They were kind of looking for, you know, problems. And I don't think that they quite realized where they were and what was happening. And so the neighborhood kids in Kensington are fiercely territorial. And the last thing that they wanted were punks in their neighborhood. And so they came into the venue and maybe a couple of, you know, maybe the opening act played and it's, you know, it started getting getting kind of rough in the pit and they were trying to, they were taking cheap shots at the punks and, you know, Philly punks are pretty tough. They were giving it right back. And, you know, the DC kids were giving it right back. And what happened was, you know, it was a setup and Ian and I talked about it years later. Um, He was on the stage, he saw it happen. He saw some little kids come in They uh, threw some punches at the D.C. kids and the D.C. kids chased them. Ian recognized immediately this is a setup. He said, you know, he's screaming at everybody, don't go outside, don't go outside. But they did. And when they did, um, the whole entire neighborhood was there with bats and pipes and, you know, wrenches and everything (laughs) just ready, you know, to kill. And once they ran out you couldn't run back in you know because they were they were just lined up you know everywhere and the the sad thing about the whole thing that i didn't like was that the dc kids didn't differentiate between the philly punks and the kensington kids kensington kids didn't differentiate between philly punks and dc punks and so it was just mayhem and you know i took a punch to the face that day um as well and i don't know if i was knocked out i you know, I don't remember really. I just know that I had, I used to carry mace with me and I just maced anybody that got in my way till I made my way to the door. (laughs) And all I wanted to do was get out of there, but we had taken the train there. It was an elevated train, you know? And so we had taken the train there. So, you know, we ran back to the, my friends and I ran to the train and it's like something out of the Warriors, you know, we're just praying, you know, with the train come hiding between cars, waiting to hear it rumble over the tracks and get on the train and get home. And I can remember, you know, literally making deals with God. Like, if you get me out of here, I'll never go to another show. I'll go to law school. I'll do whatever <laughs> you want to get me out of here. And so it was a pretty terrifying um event. And it wasn't until years later that I found out how badly DC's injuries were from that night, with stitches and concussions and pipes to the head, and you know just everything. It, it was pretty bad, and we should not have gone back a year later to see the dead Kennedys. You know, but
1: I, uh, just uh, just like also just for everyone to understand, like why you know there were people from Washington DC up there. That's because Black Flag had toured there, and they had such a fo- like their following was. You know, they, yes, and they, so they would, they would it go with lo- them to like to another city or whatever.
0: Right, like, right. It was it was supposed to be SOA's last show. And so that was one of the main reasons that D.C. kids came up for it. And I was a little you know, I was already a little skeptical and a little wary of the D.C. kids because of the whole straight edge thing. I didn't know how I felt about that. You well, know, I,
1: I, th- I think I misspoke because I, I meant to say it was. Uh, It was that was a big night because that was when Henry Rollins was going to join Black Flag. He hadn't joined yet. So I'm no, he hadn't
0: joined yet, but he did do a couple of songs with Black Flag that night. And so, um, you know, there were a lot of D.C. kids. And I remember talking to some of the D.C. girls before the show, and I thought they were really cool and really nice. And um, I was excited. You know, we were always excited when people came to town and. You know, wanted to them to have a good time, and you know but sort of backfired on us this time. It was probably the direct opposite of a good time.
1: wasn't there something to when I guess like when the the violence was reaching a certain peak, uh, did the police show up?
0: Yeah, so the police showed up, and um, you know, Philadelphia police at the time were notoriously corrupt and and everybody knew it. And so the cops did very little to help. And in fact, at one point, Ian had jumped in and was trying to break up a fight. And, you know, the cops, it was you know, started hitting him and he was like, yo, I'm trying to, like, you know, fix things. And then the scariest thing of all, of course, was when finally, you know, there was a ceasefire and everybody left and Ian went to start his car and he was with Cynthia. And I think Cynthia's sister, Cynthia Conley, who was his, you know, longtime girlfriend for quite a bit. um, They went to start the car and the battery was dead. And
1: And by, by by Ian, you mean, uh, Ian McCoy from from Mm -hmm. minor threat
0: from minor threat. Yeah. And so when he went to start the car, it was dead. And he was like, Holy shit. (laughs) Like what am i going to do and the cops were like we're leaving in 10 minutes and he was like you can't leave us here you know we'll die yeah <laughs> so he finally got them to give him a jump so that they could get out of kensington their car ended up dying you know uh, under in an underpass in philadelphia but outside of kensington and they ended <laughs> up having to spend the night in a park.
1: In the uh, other part of Philadelphia, at least, right?
0: Yeah, in a different <laughs> part of Philadelphia. And so, but they were just so relieved, I guess, to get out of Kensington. And I didn't know, you know, a lot of this until, you know, many years later about what happened to him. I knew he was there. And, you know, I, I took, when I took a punch in the face, it was from a D.C. kid. And so I sort of had a little bit of an attitude against D.C. kids after that for a while until... I met Al and then Al and I went to a show in Baltimore to see minor threat and Al introduced me to Ian and he was a really nice guy. You know, I could tell right away that he was, you know, a nice, sincere, passionate person. And, and, um, you know, so forgot all about what happened. As
1: well. no, I, I very much enjoyed, um uh, in the beginning, it's not really a forward, it's the introduction to your book. And it was the way I understand it is more like you uh, kind of interviewed him and then just took his answers to your questions. And and that was the introduction. And I thought it was very yeah. thoughtful. Uh, um, it made me think of a lot of interest, like some of the language he used. Uh, I never really heard anybody say those exact things before. And I thought they were very thoughtful, uh, for instance. And this is, I think this might even apply to what we're talking about here. Like this, this scene where there isn't, there's not unity at that time. And there's people are fighting just because they're from different cities and whatnot. But he was saying that a lot of what punk rock, the music was just the currency of of the uh the culture itself is that
0: yeah yeah that's you know i i went to him because you know i hardcore and punk permeated so much of my life long after i was out of it like i was out of hardcore in 1985 but i kept coming back to it for the next you know 30 years and i kept saying like why is it so important to me? Why did it inform who I became as a person, a friend, a wife, a teacher? And and so I, I went to Ian because he had still been in the music business. And we had been at, at, a couple of the, you know, the same events, the SOA show, the Buff Hall show. And I wanted to get his take on it. You know, why am I still talking about hardcore and these shows and these bands 40 years later? And so that's why, you know, I, you know we've of course, remained friends for years and, you know, he would call Al for, you know, time to time and Al would call him and they would talk. And, um, when Fugazi of course came and played, they stayed with us. And so I I really wanted him to help me frame the book. And I thought he did a really good job of that, you know, to to talk that it was, you know, the music was really so important to us that in many cases we literally risked our lives to see the band, but it was also about the friendships and the hang and the people that you met. And that to me is also a really big part of punk and hardcore that I still carry with me today. And I still am friends with a lot of the people that I met 40 years ago. And I think that says something about the genre and the people and, and the music. And so it's it's nice to, to get that framing because I wasn't really sure why I was still talking about it, you know, and Ian's so great. He's like, yeah, sure. We can talk. He come down to discord house. I was like, come down to discord. <laughs> you know, like I have to go down there and, you know, can we do this on the phone? You know, but, um, it was, it was really a fun day. Um, and I got to, you know, had not been to discord house. And so I, you know, he gave us the, the tour and it was great fun. And, um, one is, of my it a, is that a
1: recording studio?
0: Uh, it's 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 not it's where they practiced in the beginning days. And it's where, you know, all the magic happened in the beginning days. Okay. of Discord. And the record company is across the street now. I think it was a glass company or something that he, they bought out. And so, you know, getting your picture taken on the steps of Discord House, you know, it's sort of, you know, the iconic Glenn Friedman photo where they're all sitting on the porch and all that stuff is still there. The lawnmower, the skateboard, you know, everything is still there, kind of untouched and,
1: That's cool. and
0: by time. Yeah. And and the house is really cool and uh, welcoming and he just couldn't have been nicer. And, you know, we flew down in the morning and we flew black at night and I have some relatives and friends in Arlington that met me there. And, you know, we went, from they picked me up there and we went out to dinner and then I got jumped on the plane and came home. So it was really, you know, probably the best day of that year. I think my girlfriend and I said, everything went perfect. You know, <laughs> we, so, we didn't miss anything, no flights or anything. So everything was great. And and he did, you know, he's was what he told me was perfect and um, it really did help frame the book. And so I'm really honored and happy and so grateful that he gave me that um to help launch the you know the story
1: yeah because that's a and i I agree entirely like it's that introduction is so important because you do begin the story very early on and uh and it helps you know like just to yeah to hear like uh his thoughts on uh hardcore and punk and and like uh the culture itself because you begin kind of like very early on for yourself and also uh in a lot of ways uh one of the themes of your book is how punk rock influenced the way you approach education, you know, cause you're an educator now. And, uh, but obviously growing up in a Catholic school is a major factor. And the thing for me, when I was reading your book is, uh, I just have to say that my great aunt Jeannie was a Catholic nun and, uh, but she's probably the nicest person that I've ever met. So, uh, obviously I was surprised when you said that when you were a kid, a Catholic nun was the scariest person in the world to you. I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't raised, uh, in any kind of religion. So the only really Catholic nun that I ever really knew was my great aunt. And she, you know, I just thought she was the nicest. I was like, Oh, all nuns must be very nice. But then I read your story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> would you mind just sharing just a little bit what it was like growing up with that kind yeah, of education and, and-, and that culture?
0: Yeah, some of the nuns were really nice, like my first grade nun was really, you know, sweet and and helped sort of um, feed my intellectual curiosity and my desire to learn. She was really great. Everything was really great until I had that nun sister, Alice in eighth grade. And she was (laughs) like, she was a terror, you know, she was obviously, you know, in advanced age and probably in the throes of, of dementia, but no one, you know, back then no one really questioned, um, what the teachers were doing, you know, our parents, figured if you got in trouble, it was your fault. You did something wrong, very different from the way it is today. And so there were, I remember it was like one girl who her mother was like, what's going on in this classroom, you know? Because we were all so terrified (laughs) of this nun and she was so mean. To this day, one of the meanest people I, I ever met, she would make kids cry just for sport. And it sort of began my rebellion um, and and the first time I ever realized that an authority figure isn't always right and isn't always good and isn't always looking out for my best interest and I I do sort of pinpoint that as my the beginning of my rebellion against authority and questioning things like, well, wait a second, this isn't right And so, you know, maybe things would have gone differently if I didn't have Sister Alice as my teacher. Maybe I would have been a nun. Who the hell knows? You but- know
1: what, uh, but I don't know why this just popped into my mind because a moment ago I was just saying that I that I only you know because because of my personal like my family member I always thought of aunts I mean uh, of nuns as being very nice, but I, I do recall that scene in The Blues Brothers where they go back to their uh, Catholic school and and the the nun starts beating them with a ruler is. Wow. I do have a question that was, are they, is that a thing? Do nuns, did they hit you with a ruler? Is that a, a, out of reality or. or Yeah, no,
0: they did in my school. And I remember (laughs) um, I used to bite my nails um, and the nun that particular nun sister Alice would come around and you had to hold out your hands and if you bit your nails she hit you with her they used to have rosary beads on like their belt and she would whack you with the why rosary
1: beads, you
0: know <laughs> I don't know, you
1: know why would you do
0: Me, that nun, you know because we bit our nails and I was like oh my god um you know terrified that she was going to you know, do that. So I don't think we got hit as badly as, um, you know, some, some students in some schools, you know, but, um, you know, it was, it was intimidating and it was definitely off-putting and it made me not want to go to school. Whereas before from like first to fifth grade, I couldn't wait to go to school. Like I couldn't wait for summer vacation to be over so I could get back in the classroom. And that all changed after sixth grade.
1: You know, I had a very similar timeline. I loved, loved school, like elementary school, like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, just like school was awesome. And then after that, it started, like that's when it started going downhill until yeah, I reached the point by eighth grade, I was like, I hate school, I don't ever wanna be here. Um, But I suppose like what you were saying earlier uh, with Sister Alice and, and, you know, confronting for the first time that uh, a figure of authority is not, you know, is potentially not just wrong, but like, you know, even to the point of cruel.
0: Yes, evil. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, So I guess, would you say that that maybe like started sowing the seeds of punk rock?
0: Absolutely. It was was definitely right then and there that I said, "Uh, something's wrong here. You know, this isn't right. And I'm going to try and do what I can to get out of it and stand up to it. And it was hard, you know? And I think my brother... Actually, a couple of years later, he had Sister Alice as a teacher and I was really I love I adored my brother and I didn't want him to, you know, be treated the same way. And I don't know if she I think at that point, maybe she had mellowed a little bit or maybe she he was four years younger than me or maybe, he, you know, she didn't even finish the year. But I remember being really scared that he was going to have her and she was going to wreck his life. <laughs> <laughs> And I would do everything to get her to like me. Like, you know, I was like a puppy, you know, like, please like me. I'm going to come in and clean your dust, your statues every day and do your chalkboards. And she was just
1: mean. It's one of those things that at the time definitely, you know, must have sucked. But if it sent you on the trajectory of later on, you know, throwing uh, shows like Punk Fest, managing punk bands. I mean, that's... uh, (laughs) Maybe maybe there is a small bit of thanks to Sister Alice, even though, yeah, sure. uh, even, though, you know? even, though even though it was completely inadvertent and she <laughs> was not probably trying to get you into this, uh, this world of music and rebellion. Uh, right.
0: And that and that happened with, you know, a lot of my teachers that I had after that, um, who I kind of viewed as uncaring or incompetent. It made me want to be a teacher because if they were the examples of what a teacher was, then I would be the anti teacher, you know, I'd be doing the exact opposite of what they did in their classroom. So I do sort of owe them a debt of gratitude, because you, there's usually, you know, two two kinds of people that become teachers, people that are inspired by really great teachers, or people like me who had some bad teachers and all right, well, we're going to change this. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, I remember I had a, I had a a PE teacher. And I was like, you know, PE was like probably one of the only classes I even wanted to do anything in, but I was like all every single day he'd maybe sit in the bleachers and do write-offs. So it was like the one chance I would get to exercise and then I wouldn't get to be like for whatever, you know, it was just always like a, cause my, I didn't have the right, a proper attire or some dumb shit. Oh
0: God. Yeah. I remember all those things where they, you know, suck the fun out of learning or or the school experience and so sometimes like you know I'll, get, I'll be in class and I'll be so angry with a kid or something and then I I have to stop myself and be like okay you know don't ruin this kid's love of learning because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's because you're in a really bad mood and he's done something silly or stupid so I try to I, I think that's one reason that I am a decent teacher is because I do remember what it was like to be a kid even though I'm old as dirt. So
1: and, and I guess like, yes, you know, speak. So, you know, continuing on your journey and, you know, at this point, I, I'm sure like becoming a teacher is still like the farthest thing from your mind. Cause I guess, uh, when you, when you got, after, after you got out of school, uh, you decided to go, uh, join corporate America and start working at a law firm. But at the same time, that's when you were becoming uh, totally a part of punk culture. Did that feel like you were living a double life sometimes?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) One hundred percent. It did, because this was the time, you know, that um, you had to dress a certain way. Uh, Women were supposed to wear dresses to work. And I can remember getting called into the office because I was wearing, you know, um, I think I wore corduroys or something with boots. And uh, and they were like, oh, no, like, you." you (laughs) You you can wear slacks, but, you know, or or wearing like black jeans or something like you could not do that. And I would dye my hair sometimes a, a color on the weekend and then dye it back before I went back to school. And I remember one time I had dyed my hair pink, I think it was. And I went to work and I couldn't get all the pink out. And One of my girlfriends calling me in the bathroom being like, "Yo, you got pink in your hair. Like, let me put (laughs) it up for you so that you can't see it. And then I forget how we found out you're supposed to use dishwashing detergent on it to get. Someone told us use dishwashing detergent and that'll take the pink out. And so then I went home and did that and it worked, you know, but if you had pink hair, you like, you would get fired. Whoa.
1: <laughs> so Damn. I what? was
0: really lucky that I was really good at my job and I made sure that I learned so many positions, like I could do, run the copy machine. I could run the switchboard. I worked in word processing. Like I tried to make my, and I was never out, even though I was out to, yeah. <laughs> you know, all hours of the morning. I, you know, that Catholic school guilt got me. I was, I always went to work. So I was never absent. And so I think that, you know, I just endeared myself to my bosses so that they liked me and they would look the other way if I, looked a little different than everybody else. And mostly everybody was, you know, really, really nice to me. And I tell the story in the book about when I had black eyes two twice in one year and the attorneys called me into the, into the conference room and I thought I was getting fired. I was terrified. And they were like all my favorite attorneys. And they said, you you know, we know your boyfriend is beating you up and we want to help you. Now, th- at that time, that was pretty radical of them to do. Most people just, you know, minded their own business and didn't, you know. And I was so moved by their concern that I, I just started crying, which made them think that I didn't even have a boyfriend at the time. I don't yeah. think, you know. And I was just so moved by their concern for me um, that I just started crying. But things like, I think you know one black eye was from the D.C. thing, and another one was from a stage dive that didn't go well. And you couldn't explain that; it didn't translate to lawyers in a state.
1: Yeah, be, I'm guy. sure that you know, I'm sure those are that they're they were nice guys or caring. You know, they cared about you, but at the same time, like we're just saying, they ha- if you try to explain to them that you stage dived and hit the concrete floor, right. they're going to be like, "That sounds like a made up story." <laughs> that's not, you know, it does. It sounds like saying, I fell down, I fell down the stairs. I yeah. You. And I,
0: and I think that's what, I think that's what I said because I knew it wouldn't translate. So I think that when I went the second time that I had, like, I don't know what I said the first time, but the second time, I think I said I was in a car accident or something, you know, yeah. just because I, I knew it wouldn't translate. I wasn't even going to try to explain.
1: Yeah. And
0: so they, um, they saw that as a lie, which of course it was,
1: but only because the truth was more strange
0: exactly at least least
1: they'll understand the lie um that particular stage dive the one that uh where you like smashed up the whole side of your face and got a concussion didn't you like wake up backstage with a jello biafra icing your head
0: yeah jello gave me ice and he was like you're gonna be fine you'll be fine (laughs)
1: Was that, was that like the first time you met him was like him trying to like ice your head after a concussion? Yeah.
0: Like actually met him. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I saw them play, you know, they were on stage that night and, you know, they were great. Um, I just, you know, that was the um, third night of um, a, a three night dead Kennedy's thing. I saw them first in Staten Island on Friday night, then with the bomb in, in Kensington on Saturday and then on Sunday in Trenton New Jersey and so um you know they they were they were you know such a great band but that friday night ended in a riot Saturday was the bomb. And so on Sunday, I was like, I'm just sitting over here on the side of the stage. And I was like sitting on the stage on the side. And that's when one of my friends ran up to me and said, let's, you know, let's do a dual stage dive. And I was like, sure. But before I even had time to set up or do anything, he had grabbed my hand and we went running and um, he wiped everybody out and I hit, I hit the ground and it was bad. I mean, my entire face was swollen from my forehead, you know, to my, it was just, I mean, I I looked horrible. Um, It was, and, and, and it lasted, you know, for, over a month, you know, oh, before my yeah. face actually, you know, through all the colors that it went through. And to this day, you know, um, we're on a Zoom, so you can see I still have dark circles under my eyes that I swear <laughs> to God came from that. You know, they just never healed. I was, I had a hematoma. It was, I'm lucky that I didn't ha- I didn't have something way more serious happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: As a result, because it the way it looked, you would have thought um i don't even think i had a concussion really i'd had a hematoma and a couple other things but i they tested me for concussion and i didn't have it and i had a really good friend at the time named bruce and bruce stayed with me that night woke me up every couple hours like you know you're supposed to do and made sure i was fed and had water and he's a good friend a,
1: a, a stage dive with no one to catch you is a really good way to get actual brain damage. <laughs>
0: yeah, really. And I, I mean, I saw it happen over the years, people break their neck and stuff. And I was, you know, I was really lucky that it wasn't a lot worse. And, and um, I don't think I dove after that, you know, I think I sort of had PTSD. And I don't think I ever dove again after that.
1: I had a, um, I mean, I've had a lot of mosh pit moments where I was like, this might be, you know, like, beyond serious injury, like this might be like, it for me, because I it was in a, I remember this one very super clearly. And I used to be like really, really skinny. I was a skateboarder and all I did was skate. So like I had, you know, I didn't have like nothing in my body at that time. I, you know, like just, uh, and I remember I was, uh, I was in a circle pit and it was rancid. It was an outdoor show. So the circle pit was able to get huge because it was outdoors just in dirt and mud. And I was having a great time. And then somebody, you know, I don't, it wasn't, I'm sure it was not no ill intent, but somebody got me really hard in the stomach, completely knocked the wind out of me. And it was, and I could, I was still moving, still going forward. Because the thing is like, if I went down, I was going to get trampled because there was no way to stop that circle. And just when I was like on the brink, I was like, I'm going down. I'm going to get trampled by maybe 50 people before, you know, someone gets me out of here. Uh, my friend, Josh, I want to shout out in case he's listening, my friend, Josh (laughs) Carnes, who was a bit of a giant, he was to the point, he was able to reach in over several people and grab me and he's strong and pick me up. And he like, he lifted me out of the pit uh, right before like I uh, passed out. <laughs> so yeah, I was able well, to
0: kind Yeah, because you could have gotten trampled and certainly, yeah. you know, certainly people did. You know, the closest I felt I came to dying was in the book when I talk about the queen show where I got caught between the two doors. You know, when when the venue opened the doors, I was you know, we were waiting because it was general admission. We wanted to be up front and the door opened and I got sandwiched right between, you know, two opening doors and they were both squeezing me. And I couldn't take a breath in and I'm like, I'm going to suffocate. And I just it went right through my head. If you don't do something, you're going to die here, here and now. And this was right before the Who concert where um you know, I, I forget how many people died at in similar circumstances. And so I just took every bit of strength that I had, Herculean strength, and pushed as hard as I could and got enough to get myself out of yeah. there.
1: No, yeah. And I remember was,
0: I was terrified.
1: I was remember reading that reading that in your in your book, and it was reminding me of you know, that concert recently where uh several people were crushed. It's right. Those those massive like you know, huge, huge festivals like that. It's you, you really, people like need to have an understanding of like, you know, like scientific understanding of like the dynamics of that, know, but it's like physics, like <laughs> people right, need to know right. that. And Cause how many people you can have in, you need release points, pressure release. I do want to share one other one. You just made me think of this one too. Uh, I was at the, uh, I was at uh, a Melvin's show and the pit was like, it was really fun. And everything was going great. There's one particular guy. I knew him. He was like, always in, he was at every punk rock show and every kind of you know but he was just a bad guy <laughs> and he was always in trouble i think he's finally locked away for good now uh for the last thing he did but uh he came up and he punched me in the face as hard as he could and it knocked me like i don't know if it was all the way out but it knocked me it laid me out on the floor and i got thrown out of the show for being the guy on the floor. And I was outside. I didn't have a shirt because my shirt was still inside and I was throwing a fit to the bouncer and telling him to let me back in. I was like, he, you know, he hit me, it's not my fault. And I wouldn't let it go. I wouldn't let it go And the owner of the club finally came out and paid me to leave. It <laughs> was like, he was like, I don't want you in front of the club doing this this anymore. <laughs> He's like, here's some money go. And I was like, all right, deal. <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry that I took you uh, down the road of, of me at, <laughs> Me getting knocked out at the Melvins. I wanted to say, while you were holding down a nine to five, you also became a band manager and a show promoter and an event organizer. And I know to most people, like that, probably sounds like all you did was work. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. I know that when you're doing what you love, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, I guess my questions really are: I was like, how did you pull that off? And specifically uh, Managing a touring band and putting together shows like Punk Fest.
0: Yeah, I mean you know back then you have boundless energy when you're a kid. You know uh, even even today yeah. like I get I, I get home at three thirty and I'm like we okay, have a podcast.
1: <laughs> you, <laughs>
0: know? Like, you know it's like and <clears throat> everything just seems so oh God I have to do this or I have to do that but back then I don't know you just have boundless energy to do things and I loved the guys in the band that I was managing, the Sadistic Exploits, they were all just, you know, really great guys. And and one of them was my boyfriend at the time. And we just wanted to make things happen. And they did happen over, you know, large periods of time. It wasn't like we were booking a show every week, you know, the first one was in October, the second one was in December. Yeah. You know, and then the next one after that was probably like April, you know. So it wasn't like we were we were doing them constantly either. But you just had a lot of energy for that kind of thing. And I lived in the city, so I had no commute. Um, my boyfriend lived with me at the time, so you know, we could go out and fly, or we could go do things together, and it was just fun and it didn't seem like it took up like it It seemed like there were more hours in the day back then I guess you know yeah it doesn't seem the, the same as it is today where I feel like if I'm going to do anything like I have to schedule it and figure out what am I going to do the next day you know like for my book parties that I have coming up like I, I if I have a party like I take the next day off you know because <laughs> I know that I'm going to be too tired And so, um, and that's probably because I don't eat right or, you know, (laughs) I don't live a, I should should be vegan, I should be doing a lot of different things with my life. Um, But I just, you know, I wish I had that energy of youth. When you're young like that, you just had that energy. I can remember going to see the Bad Brains on like a Tuesday night, getting dropped off in front of my law firm, putting my pantyhose on in the elevator and going to work and not thinking twice about it, you know? Yeah.
1: Hold up, it's time for another My Views or My Own astrological reading. This week's horoscope is for Cancer. Hello Cancerians! With the moon hanging out in your 12th house of release, you want to tune out the static of daily life and get lost in the moment. For the moon has connected with aesthetic Venus and motivated Mars in your 8th house of depth. I know what you're thinking. What if Mercury enters my ninth house of adventure and travel? Well, I wouldn't worry about that, for Karkinos calls upon you to fulfill a prophesized doom. That's right, Cancer. The great crab god Karkinos awakens from his ancient slumber, for a great blasphemy has disturbed his rest. Dwayne the Rock Johnson has angered Karkinos with his 2014 film Hercules. You might have forgotten it, but Karkinos does not forget. Carquinos commands all Cancerians to demand that Dwayne the Rock Johnson apologize for his affront and denounce Heracles at the altar of Karkinos, Or Dwayne the Rock Johnson must be cast into the sea. And don't forget that self-care is important, Cancer. So remember to take some well-deserved you time while you fulfill the oath set forth by your birth. And now back to the interview. No, yeah, I, I I, when you say it like that, I do remember Like when I was much younger, when I was always in bands and we would do things like, yeah, drive several hours to get to the thing and get there and find out that the slot we were supposed to play is gotten pushed back and then have to hang out, you know, until so late that we're like, well, we're not going to get home until dawn. And then right. I got to be at work <laughs> like right. that happened right. frequently. But yeah, you're yeah, right. It didn't bother me that it, today I would not. Put up with it. I wouldn't do that now, but yeah, <laughs> yeah when I was yeah, you know, my when my early twenties, I was like, hey man, that's what I got to do <laughs> if I want yeah, to be if I want to be on stage.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun, you know. Like you just had a, you know, you had a good time, and sleep didn't seem to be as important, or you grabbed a nap here or there, and um, it was just fun. And I'm I feel really grateful that I came up that way and had that experience because. When once you're old and you can't do those things, at least you can look back and say, damn, I had fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. So. Well, uh, so. So, yeah, I do. I know what you're saying. Yes. And especially like when you're having fun, the uh, the energy also generates from the fun itself. So That's I totally cool. get how, uh, you, you know, you will be able to like, you know, take take your band, the, the sadistic exploits, get to another city, play a show, get back, go to work because it was worth it. Um, But you did another thing, too, that was kind of groundbreaking in Philadelphia at that time, because there had never been a punk festival. And like you were saying, there weren't like a lot of clubs that were for your scene. So you went and you rented out the Elks Club.
0: Yeah, the Elks Center. And that was um, so there were some if you wanted to see a band, you had to see them either, you know, the Tower Theater spectrum, you know, which our bands weren't playing there, you know, or you had to see them in a nightclub. And not everybody was old enough to I wasn't old enough at the time to to get into a club. So some friends of ours had rented the Elk Center to do a show with Pylon. And then the next night, I think, was Bath House. And I remember I went to those shows and the venue was really cool, you know, and it was the fraternal order of Elks. But it was all black because the black Elks were not allowed in the white Elks at the time when when so they created their own um, venue. And it was an incredible place where over the years from like the early 1920s, they had done um jazz shows and boxing matches and had incredible singers there. Bessie Smith had her funeral there. You know, it was a really historical place. I didn't really realize that when we, we booked the place, but the, uh, you know, the Elks were old. They were the, you know, old black men who were like our grandfather's age and they were really nice to us. There was, the venue upstairs where the punk bands played and then there was a bar downstairs where, you know, if you had your hand stamped or whatever, you could go down and, they, you know, the Elks were downstairs and they were really accommodating and really nice and letting us be part of their community and I'll always be grateful to them for that and that venue was a really you know the acoustics could be bad and the sound could be rough yeah I saw some you know not just my shows because other people started doing shows as well like my friends in the band autistic behavior did the first bad brain show I ever saw was there and that was transformative you know it was just unbelievable seeing them there and a black flag played there, Who's Kadoo played there, Minutemen. Um, a lot of really cool bands um, came through there, Flipper. And it was a it was a great, it was a great venue. And when you were on the dance floor, you could feel it moving. And we were always afraid it was going to collapse. And I think at Who's it did, it did finally break. And then that was it. And there that was oh. the end of shows there. Yeah. Um, I mean. that was after I had moved to Boston. Um, and then they ended up tearing the place down, which is a shame because uh, it should have been. I think it's an old age home now. We always, punks in Philly, always laugh that we're all. We should all go stay. I'll go live li- <laughs> <go laughs> in the hills. Go live there, um, but it should have been preserved be, for what it was for the black community at that time, um, and everything that it did. Because when I did my research on it, it was really a great place um in those in those years from the early 1900s you know straight through so
1: if that's not a historic site then what is a historic site right Uh, but um just to go back one you might have just mentioned this and but i think what one of the like the inspirations for you guys going and getting involved with the elks and renting their pa and doing that was because you wanted an all ages venue is that like that was kind of like the main motivation right
0: that was the main motivation yeah we wanted to bring the music to the kids and when we booked that first punk fest and i mean we worked our asses off we put flyers everywhere you can't even imagine like we put those flyers you could see them for like 15 years after that you know because we did we paste (laughs) yeah yeah it doesn't come off we had flyers everywhere and um we weren't Sure, because the punk scene was so small back then, and we thought we knew all the punks in the Philly, Jersey area. And we weren't sure, you know, who would come. and I just remember that first night looking out and and with the bass player of sadistic exploits Robbie and him saying, like, "Holy F, you know, like, The line was just down the street of people, and there were just so many people there. And at the end of the night, I I say in the book, you know, how they asked me to come up on stage and thank people. And I had never even spoken to a microphone before, you know, looking out over the crowd. Oh, man, it was this tremendous sense of celebration and accomplishment. It was probably one of the happiest days of my life, in all seriousness, if not the happiest day of my life, because (laughs) we had you know, worked so hard to accomplish this goal and we pulled it off really successfully. And it was a huge success. Everything, you know, there was a little, you know, a couple little things that went wrong, but most of all, most of it went off without a hitch. And it was really empowering for empowering for me, um, to see that happen. And I couldn't wait to do another one.
1: The, the all ages club, like, you know, not just in punk rock, but in whatever is like, it's a thing that must exist you know just I it, when I was a uh, when I was a kid as a teenager um, we had an all-ages club called IndyNet, uh previously called Lucy's record shop I don't know if you might be familiar with some of that, that just if that ever those those names made it all the way up to Philadelphia but maybe not you know even if I didn't have the five dollars to get in which frequently I didn't even have five bucks but I would show up anyway and I would just skateboard out front or sit out front and just you know it was like I I had to be there even if I couldn't couldn't make it in, inside of the building it was not it didn't matter it didn't matter I didn't have to be inside it's Friday night I'm gonna and you know I didn't have a car so I would skateboard five miles to get there <laughs>
0: yeah yeah. Um, I mean, that's why I go to shows now because I want to see my friends. It's like a high school reunion every time. If somebody's, you know, TSOL or flag or someone is playing, you know, we're going to go see the circle jerks when they come and negative approach. And it's just, you know, it's so exciting to see and fun to see the people that I haven't seen in so long, especially with the pandemic. So I'm really looking, that's in a couple of weeks and I'm really looking forward to that.
1: Um, And I guess so following along with the timeline of where where we're at now, uh, you're doing all this stuff, like I was saying, with the the managing and mayhem and violence is still a very real factor uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, Earlier, you were just talking about those dead Kennedy shows um, Mm -hmm. and specifically like the uh, the bomb situation, which we didn't really get into yet. But can you tell the story of the dead Kennedy's concert when some local residents attacked the venue with a homemade bomb?
0: Yeah, so um, that was so the night before I went to Staten Island to see SSD Control and and um, DOA and the Dead Kennedys play. And that show ended in a riot. Um, So then the next night I came home, took a nap and (laughs) I was excited because my little brother was coming down and I really adored my little brother. And I wanted him to see the Dead Kennedys. And it was a scorching, scorching. Scorching hot day, and there was, of course, I don't think any air conditioning in the venue at all. So we were sitting out front, and remember now, SOA had happened a year before, and I figured, wow, that was a year ago. Like that's long in
1: the past. (laughs) That's ancient history.
0: (laughs) And my brother and I were talking, and he was in the middle of a sentence, and I saw this car pull up with four guys in it. And I didn't like the looks of the car, you know, I had a certain amount of street sense by that time from living in the city. And I thought they were going to do a drive-by shooting. I just grabbed my brother and I said, run. And we ran down the street and they threw a homemade bomb, a stick of dynamite, ball bearings and BBs into the crowd of punks that were standing there. I remember one girl got her heel blown off. There's blood everywhere. People have ball bearings and BBs embedded in their arms and their legs. And, it, you know, we were like, oh, my God. Like, I mean, that's an act of domestic terrorism now. Right. I don't You know, when
1: if you did that now, ATF would be so fucking all over. Those guys would not have. They wouldn't have made it through the day without being.
0: Yeah, I don't even uh, think we could get the cops to come, you know. So we ran back into the safety to safety of the club. And I remember. The venue, the manager of the club like barricaded the door and Jello being up on stage, looking at the porthole windows, saying, Did you ever feel like you're on a sinking ship? <laughs> it's like, Yes, yes, I do. And I was so scared. And um, my friend Victor, who was one of the toughest guys I ever knew, he was just like, Stick with me because if anybody looks at me m- more than two seconds, I'm banging them out. And I was <laughs> like, Okay, I'll stay with you. But I just wanted my brother you know, to be, I just wanted to get out of there really. At that point, I didn't even care about seeing the dead Kennedys cause I was scared. And, um, you know, they played a couple songs and it was good. And then somebody sprayed, um, a fire extinguisher. So you couldn't see anything. And then I just thought something nefarious was really behind yeah. all that was, and I was just like, somebody had a, a pickup truck or a station wagon—I forget which it was—and I was like, "Can I ride it? Can we ride in the back? Get me <laughs> out of here!" And so uh, they let us ride in the. And then I was like, "I make a promise, a vow. I shall, I will never return to Kensington," and that is a promise I have kept. <laughs> so-
1: it's Just—it's crazy to think <laughs> the how much uh, punks were hated at that time to the point where people could. Yeah, like you said, commit an act of domestic terrorism, throw a bomb into a crowd, severely injure people. The police don't even fucking show up, you know, let alone like Homeland Security, which is what would be, you know, what would happen now. Right.
0: And I remember the girl whose foot was really severely injured. They went back with the hospital report and and to talk to the police and um, no record, no record of anything um, existed. So. It was, um, you know, it was, it was disturbing, <laughs> that, you know, that that happened. Nobody was culpable for it. And we're lucky that someone wasn't killed. I,
1: drink- I do. I do love Philadelphia. I just don't think I've yeah. seen much of it. I mean, I, uh, it's only, I've only really seen it just because I've driven, it's, I've driven through Philadelphia on the way to someplace else. I always stopped there to eat. Uh, yeah. Last, uh, when I very first time I ever went to Philadelphia, I, I was blown away. I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful city. I was there in the summer I ate at a, at a Chinese restaurant called the kingdom of vegetarians. And it was the, I don't know if you are familiar with that restaurant, but it's the first Chinese restaurant I'd ever eaten at that was completely vegan.
0: Wow. And it had
1: like, uh, things like, uh, like name anything, you know, like Kung Pao chicken or whatever, but it had, you know, they had done it as a meat substitute and that's a lot more common now, but this was like, you know, back when there were you know, vegans were like of fringe of society.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's really different. You know, I mean, that was when I was there, it's 42 years ago now or 40 years ago. And so I you know, I've been back a few times and I can't believe how much the city has changed. But Kensington is still pretty uh, is still pretty scary. They have a very bad, bad drug problem. And I want I would love my goal is when I retire in two and a half years is to move back to Philadelphia. I would really like to do that. You know, I have to convince Al, but he hates the web. He's, you know, the weather up here is rough on him. And I was going to say the weather's got to
1: be a big factor of wanting to not that it's it's not that it's warm in (laughs) Philadelphia, (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's warm compared to where we are right in the ocean, right yeah. on the ocean in, in, uh, in Boston. So, you know, I would like, to, I would like to go back. I really would. And I always, when I see those videos of Kensington, I I think, you know, I'll be retired. How can I help? How could I, you know, maybe I will go back and do some volunteer work or something to help those people because it's really sad when you watch it. It's um, what drugs have done to that community.
1: So uh, I guess speaking of, uh, Actually, you know what? I don't want to spoil it. I'm going to, I'm going to let you tell the story. But, uh, but aside from uh, your experience, the, the two experiences in Kensington that we've brought up, uh, the bomb, the riots, uh, all that stuff. Otherwise, uh, you know, you were having a great time in Philadelphia from what I could tell from your book. Uh, uh, the scene was cool. You had, you know, it sounded like just fun was around every corner. But you decided to move to Boston. Why on earth would you do that? (laughs) Because
0: I was in love. Um, You know, I had met Al that July, July 1982. I bought the SSD control record and I wanted them to do a show. And on the record, it said on the insert, it said SSD wants to play your city. And there was a phone number and I called the phone number and I ended up talking to Al. And I remember I didn't even know I was talking to Al when I um, when I did, you know, when I was talking to him for four hours. I remember looking afterwards on the insert and saying, Ooh, you know, he looks so big and scary to me, you know, (laughs) at the end of, at the end of the call, I could tell, like, we really had a good conversation. We were on for hours, which was really expensive back then. And he said, why don't you come and see SSD control play with the Dead Kennedys in Staten Island? I'll put you on the list. And so I didn't know how I was gonna get to Staten Island from <laughs> Philly, but I just said, yes, I'll be there. And then we met in in um, Staten Island that night of um, the Dead Kennedys show when they played and boy, SSD, they were just so good. I remember somebody compared it to standing too close to the railroad tracks. And I thought that was a really accurate description. They were just great. And he came and visited me in Philly and I came up to Boston and we were just in love. And we were like, one of us has to move. And I really didn't have a career that I was tied to in Philadelphia. I didn't really want to be working in a law firm. And he was at the time a machinist at GE and had a pretty decent job. He had gone through a training program and stuff. So he said, one of us has to move. And I said, I'll move. You know, my parents were pissed. They were like, "You're moving for some guy, and you're not even
1: engaged."
0: <laughs> they were they were really upset with me. But uh, we, you know, because we met in September and I moved in December. But it was Oh, wow, you know, that it was, is love.
1: Uh, that's that's some yeah, that, that's know? some first sight uh, actions.
0: Right. And then, of course, you know, many years later, my mother and father both would say it was the best thing that ever happened. Al went to school to be a mechanical engineer. I went back to school to get my teaching degree. And, you know, things were things are pretty great up here, except that the weather is brutal. And so I would really love to move. And, And it's expensive. It's really expensive to live up here like I could sell my little two bedroom condo here and, you know, live in the high life in Philadelphia in and with an apartment with a gym and a pool and everything if I wanted to. So, <laughs> um, I don't know if I'll ever convince him. He used to say he could never leave his sports teams, but now with all the channels that you have, he could watch his yeah. sports teams whenever he wanted. So I don't know. I don't know if I can convince him. He wants to go to San Diego, but I don't have any... You know, I have some relatives there right now, but they're military and they'll they'll all be probably moving. So I want to move where my friends and family are. So we'll see.
1: Although I do love San Diego.
0: Yeah, me too. I do love it, but I just, you know, if and if my relatives stay out that way, then maybe I would consider it, but I i don't know i want to be i would love just to be back in philadelphia with all my friends and i'm excited i'm going to see them all at my book party on uh is april 23rd and there's like 200 people coming it's insane i don't know i i just it's mind-blowing joe hardcore is uh promoting the show for me and it's i'm really excited for that to see everybody some people i haven't seen in 40 years so oh
1: yeah wow yeah um you know what, Nancy? I got to tell you something really important. We're getting dangerously close to the lightning round. Uh, yeah. I, had, I had some other things I was going to bring up, but if people want to hear those stories, you're going to have to go read the book like I did. And let me say, it was a very enjoyable book. So
0: Thank definitely, you. W- definitely
1: worth your time. But right now, me and Nancy have something so much more important to deal with. We've got to do the lightning round, Nancy. I don't know if you're familiar with how this works it's the game podcast or the game portion of this podcast. Uh, I ask you a bunch of questions super fast. You got to answer them. Do not have time to think you got to like, it's just rapid fire. And I will say this is objectively not fair. This happens occasionally to some of my guests when I start getting really into jeopardy again, it's been a long time since that's happened. And, but I just recently have been watching the college jeopardy that's been hosted by, uh, the girl from blossom. I can't remember her real name. Uh, (laughs) So you ended up being one of the random guests that gets a Jeopardy version of the lightning round. So, but you know the rules. So I got
0: to an answer like
1: a question. Yeah, I'm gonna give you the answer. You give me the question.
0: Oh God!
1: And it's also this it's also not, not fair to get this. It's not
0: opinion. gonna go well. I'm terrible under pressure.
1: <laughs> it's also not fair because a lot of times people get a lightning round, and every question I ask them is just a subjective question. It's just really just their opinion. Sadly, right. that doesn't work for Jeopardy. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm but, know gonna what? go well. Go
0: ahead. Give it a I, shot. I have
1: a I have a feeling you're gonna win. Are you ready to play? I guess. Okay. Uh first category, punks in cinema. Uh a movie that Henry Rollins acted in. It could be any any movie that he did.
0: All I know is he was on the, uh, Sons of Anarchy. That's the only movie that I've seen. <laughs> oh, um,
1: I'm not well, going to
0: go. This isn't going to go well.
1: <laughs> the I guess the most obvious one to me is what is Heat? He was in the movie Heat with uh, oh, Al Pacino and okay. Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer. Uh, I thought he that was actually probably the best acting I feel like I saw him do. He was, I think, I want to say he was in uh, Lost Highway, but I could be wrong about that. Don't Moving me. on. It's okay, you're still on the board. (laughs) This one's even going to be harder. All right.
0: Oh, no, don't do it.
1: Next category, musical theater. The best musical ever created starring Tim Curry as Long John Silver.
0: You're, you know, the only Tim Curry musical I know is Rocky Horror Picture Show. So (laughs) I told you I'm going to suck at this. You better better do a different format or it's going to be really boring to your guests.
1: The question was, what is Muppet Treasure Island? Okay, yep,
0: Never saw it. Don't know anything about it.
1: You're going to get this one. You're going to get this one. <clears throat> Next category, travel. I Jello by Afra suggests we should take a holiday in this country.
0: That I know. What is Cambodia?
1: Correct. What is Cambodia? And that was actually double jeopardy. And that was worth like 2,000 points. So you were actually, okay, good. you're actually back, so can... back in the green. Yes.
0: Right. And, and it's funny because most of my students, when I very first started teaching, I had... Um, my first year of teaching, I had a lot of Cambodian students and they were in gangs. And um, punk rock helped me be able to reach those kids who were alienated and marginalized by the city and and the community. And and I always thought of that song, you know, because that that was the extent of my knowledge about Cambodia was from that song. When I met these students, I was woefully culturally incompetent, so. (laughs)
1: Um, isn't that uh in <clears throat> in apocalypse now i think that when they go up river they actually they actually leave vietnam and when they go find uh why why can't i think of his name the godfather
0: yeah yeah after yeah, yeah. Uh, the godfather marlon brando
1: marlon brando marlon brando is actually in cambodia not vietnam in that movie yeah um, yeah So that's, that will be the extent of my knowledge of where it is located (laughs) geographically. Um, All right. Next category. Notable Philadelphians. Oh, God. The Jackass franchise was heavily influenced by a video series created by this Philadelphia skateboarder.
0: That's BAM, right? Bam Margera. Bam? Oh, Bam? You, gotta, you, gotta
1: yeah. ask, you have to ask it as a question.
0: Yeah. Who is Bam?
1: <laughs> Correct. It is. Who is Bam? All right. You're like, you're, you're rocking, racking up some points now. You're already, you're definitely winning now. Okay. Ooh, I think I, I really want to know if you can know, if you know this one. Okay. Back to punks and cinema. Sid Vicious in the movie, Sid and Nancy was played by this Gotham city police commissioner.
0: Oh, I love that guy too. What the heck is his name? He's so brilliant in it as well, and I can't think of his name right
1: now. <laughs> he's great. He is great in everything. I will. Do you want a hint?
0: Yeah, give me a hint.
1: Would it help you to say other movies he's been in, or no, nope, uh, no, nope, nope?
0: I've.
1: Uh, he's name? not a young man. He's a. Oh, Gary Oldman.
0: Well, who is Oldman.
1: Gary Oldman? <laughs> who is Gary Oldman? Correct. Yeah, uh, he's yeah, such he's, a great actor. Yeah, it's so he's he's so transformative. That's why it's so amazing. You know, because you. I think Commissioner Gordon at this point has become his most famous role because those were just such big blockbusters. But it's crazy that if you knew, go back and you watch Sid and Nancy.
0: Oh, yeah. What an amazing Sid.
1: Sid Vicious he was.
0: <clears throat> he is Sid. And, and Chloe, the, the woman who plays Nancy, she is brilliant in that as well. Um, really good.
1: Okay. I, I am fairly certain you'll get this one because you spoke about it. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, punks in pop culture famous punk singer was parodied by Weird Al Yankovic in a song about ice cream. I'll give you one hint. The ice cream is rocky road and he loves it.
0: Mm, I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> it was Joan Jet.
0: Oh, I should have known that. Yeah. I
1: love I love Rocky Road as a parody of I love rock and roll.
0: Is that right? I don't think I've ever you know, I've seen a lot of Al's work and I like his work, um, but I don't think I've ever seen that parody. Hmm. Oh,
1: you should actually just watch it on YouTube. It's so funny.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I, as soon as we get off, I absolutely will.
1: No, this is final jeopardy. And this one actually is, this is subjective because honestly there's no right answer. Nobody knows. Yeah. Uh, but I think it should be done. The actor that would be the best fit to play the role of Iggy pop in an Iggy pop biopic.
0: Hmm. You know, Ewan McGregor played him in a velvet goldmine or uh, character that was based on him. And he was really good, but he's probably too old now. Um, so I don't I think it would
1: need to be someone who, like with the physicality.
0: To yeah, be- it would have to be somebody. And, you know, you'd want to start pretty young. And I don't I don't think my knowledge of of today's youth actors is 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 good enough to to answer that question I would have. Cause I always think like there've been people that have contacted me about making my book a movie and they'll say like, well, who would play Al? You know, and I don't, I don't have like, I don't watch TV. Um, so I don't have a really good grasp of who's a good um, actor these days, you know, a good young actor. So I'm gonna come up empty on this one as well.
1: I think you, I, well, someone popped the mind for me, I feel like you might disagree entirely and also, like you said, it's weird. It's it's what era do you want to jump in? Like, I mean, because obviously you we're going to start with the Stooges. You you will need a young guy. But yeah. I was thinking that like there was a time period when I felt like Matthew McConaughey could have definitely played a yeah, yeah. at a certain age. Like,
0: yeah, you have to, you know, it's when we get off of here. Go on YouTube and look up Velvet Goldmine, a movie called Velvet Goldmine. And and watch you and McGregor play Iggy Pop. He is Iggy Pop. I mean, it's a different name and it's supposed to be kind of Iggy and Bowie and stuff, but with different, you know, it's a little different. But I will absolutely the way he jumps absolutely. around on stage, like you will love it. You'll be You'll be emailing me saying like, oh, wow, that performance is brilliant. He's great as Iggy. He really, you know, jumping around and the way his movements and stuff, he's he's really good. But I think he's too old for the role. You got to get somebody um, a little bit younger. And like the last movie that I saw was um, Spider-Man with my nephew when he was here. And, um, (laughs) and um, you know, definitely not him. (laughs) Yeah, no, not not the the one who played um, he's in that tick tick boom movie right now. That actor who's like he's you know, he's a little bit prissy, right? But I think if you if you dirtied him up. He would he he could do it. I think he has the physicality to do it. And I think he has the acting chops to do it. You know, what? what's that actor's name? You you know who I mean, right?
1: I don't. But I'm going to Google it right now. You said it's I'm Googling tick, it right now. Too. Tick, tick, boom. I've never heard of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Andrew Garfield.
1: Oh, that's a great. Oh, that's a great. I actually I so I, I uh, forgot that. It, so I, I haven't seen the newest Spider-Man yet.
0: Yeah, okay. I am one of the
1: people uh I like I really like the kid that plays Spider-Man now, but before that, uh Andrew Garfield was my favorite Spider-Man, so yeah,
0: and I think he's got the acting chops that he could do it. Yeah, he he could play, he he could play Iggy, he really could.
1: He might have might need to put on a little bit of muscle, kind of like how Brad. Oh,
0: yeah, he would have to, you know, but he's the kind of guy who would transform for this role. He I think, could do it. So
1: (laughs) Hollywood, if you're listening, and I'm (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm so stoked you said that guys. I really do like him as an actor. He was great in Hacksaw Ridge. Uh Hollywood if you're listening, Andrew <laughs> Garfield can play Iggy Pop Iggy and Pop. you can use makeup so as he ages, you like you can make him like look like Iggy Pop, you know, at any given time. That's the magic of cinema. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, think, I think he could do it.
1: Well, I think that we discovered Uh, something really important on this podcast and it's been amazing talking to you, but I can't let you go without asking you one last question. And I'm sure a lot of people are wondering this, uh, Nancy, how can people, uh, follow you, uh, check you out? Like, uh, your book, like how can they get a copy of your book? Uh, all, all the stuff, you know, all the stuff.
0: Yeah. So if you want to get my book, the, the best way is to get it from BazillionPoints.com. And if you get it from there, I think you get a signed card, um, BazillionPoints.com. It's also available on Amazon. It's available at a lot of cool record stores and skate shops. Um, those are the best places that you know that you can that you can probably find it.
1: Hell yeah. All right, guys. Run, don't walk to your computer and get, <laughs> I'm not holding your coat by thank Nancy. So Bar- much, Bar- Bar- I appreciate it.
0: That's really, it's really nice of you. And it's great that you did this interview. I really am. I'm, I'm honored.
1: Well, I was so I, Cause I, I think I just called you or not called you. I just messaged you and I was like, I was like, Hey, I'm about to read your book. Would you like to talk about it when I'm done? And you were very, very kind and you said yes. So thank you so much. And
0: Absolutely, also, no, I know this was a work day. Much. You were
1: in a high school all day dealing with these kids and you st- Still took the time to uh, deal with me afterwards. So uh, I hope you have a wonderful evening.
0: Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Bye, Nancy. All right, bye-bye.